All right, open up your Bibles, Exodus chapter 33. We've been in this journey through the book of Exodus and the Lenten season. We've been talking about how God frees us from our own personal Egypts, the the journey of freedom, that God has a vision for our lives beyond the oppression and the bondage and the things that entrap and entangle us. And we've been looking at through the life of Moses and his leadership, the way God extracted them and the journey he's had them on. And there's been some highs and lows, just like in our lives, right? Ups and downs and moments when we're doing well, moments when we're not doing well. And we left them in a not-so-doing-well moment last week, right? Exodus 32, if you remember the scene, right? Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's been up there for 40 days, and the people grow impatient at the base of the mountain, and they decide to take matters into their own hands and kind of get things going in their own strength. Now, generally speaking, does anything good come of that when we kind of just take things into our own hands, we're going to get it going in our own strength? Usually, at Exodus 32, right, is a great picture of like, oh, just one of those cringe moments. And so Moses comes down, the people have built a golden calf, and they're bowing, and they're trying to like get God's presence to move at a pace because they're impatient. They're like, he's taking too long. We don't know what's happened to him. We need to get moving towards the promise land. And as a result of that, thousands of people lose their lives. So I think Moses and Aaron, where we leave them off last week, they were doing a lot of memorial services, funeral services, gathering people together and reflecting on the soberness of what happens when we don't follow God and do it His way. And and remember the swiftness of God's response, and it seems so harsh and extreme, is that remember, He's got a lot of eggs in this Israelite basket. He's got a lot on the line because it's about His people, His nation, His fame, His reputation to display His character to the surrounding nations. It isn't just about getting them to the promised land, it's about who they'll be when they get there. And so Exodus 32 is a window into the stuff that still needed to be formed and shaped in their character. And so this morning, we pick up the story, chapter 33, I've entitled today, The Vocabulary of the Free. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place. Now, this place is Mount Sinai, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. So, uh, V, jump ahead to the map for us for a second. We'll come back to this verse. But here's, I just want to give you like geographically where we are. So, there's a map coming. Sorry, V, I jumped ahead on you there. But the map shows like Sinai and then, yes, no, we getting there? Oh, boy, I messed them all up. Sorry, that's on me. There we go. So, there we go. We got Sinai's in the south. So, they were in Egypt, right? And they've gone 400 miles from Egypt up to the promised land. But they had a little detour through the Red Sea. Now, they're down at Sinai. It's about 300 miles from where they are at Sinai, north up to the promised land. So, when he says, leave this place, the place is Sinai, and they're headed north about a 30-day journey, r- roughly 10 miles a day if they had a good long day on their, on their walking. So about 30 days would have been the most direct and efficient route from where they were to the promised land. All right, now back to the text. So say, so leave these people you brought up out of Egypt. Go to the land I promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I'll send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I, here's the key line, underline this in your Bibles, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Now, stiff 
stiff-necked people is Bible term for like hard-hearted, hard-headed, rebellious, stubborn. That's what stiff-necked means. It's like this picture of they're trying to, it's like when they try to pull an animal a certain direction and the animal resists and pulls the other way. You're stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Had to be quite sobering coming off of chapter 32's scene there. So you see the offer? Here's the offer. The offer in Exodus 33 is presence, P-R-E-N-S-E-N-T-S, but no presence, E-N-C-E. Do you see it? Presence, meaning God says, okay, I'll go before you. I'll drive out the Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites. I'll drive out the ites. I'll take you into land flowing with milk and honey. I'll go before you and do all that. That's the presence, but what's the no presence? But I won't go with you. Do you see the offer? Presence, E-N-T-S, but no presence, E-N-C-E. Listen how Larry Crabb puts it this way. I put this quote in your notes. If you haven't already got your notes out, you can scan it with the QR code in the chair in front of you, and you can pull these up. But here's what Larry Crabb says. It's harder to enjoy God than His blessings. Offer a young child the choice of having Daddy present Christmas morning with no gifts, or having Daddy absent and a stack of gifts piled high beneath the tree. And the child might choose the gifts. Kids, great to have you here in our worship service this morning. Good to have you. You know, you might be looking at your dad right now and going, Dad, 50-50, which way I'd pick. That's what Crab's getting at. Listen, only the mature value the blessing of presence, notice E-N-C-E, over the blessing of presence, E-N-T-S. Until we develop a taste for God, we prefer a better life of blessing from God over a better hope of intimacy with Him. And because we prefer control over trust, we return to a more acceptable kind of linearity, a version of our own making, one that we can handle to see to it life works as we want. So you see, here's a marker for maturity. Remember, God's developing this group of people as He's moving them from Egypt, Sinai, and eventually the Promised Land. He's developing their character, forming and shaping their heart. And so here's a, here's a window into the kind of maturity He's trying to work inside of them. A good window for maturity in our lives is when we move from valuing presence, we get to this place where we value intimacy with God over and above the blessings from God. No, there's nothing wrong with blessings from God. That's a different conversation. It's not that the blessings are bad. It's that the, the, the posture of the heart, like if you pull the presence ENTS away, do you just kind of run Exodus 32, golden calf, take things into your own hand and try to get things moving at your own strength? That's, that's what he's trying to work out of them. He says, hey, don't go golden calf on the story. Remember, the calf was like a mediator of God's presence, ENCE. And so he's like, hey, don't take things into your own hand. He's trying to get them to value this with God life, this intimacy with him over and above blessings from him. Do you see that? So there's the offer. Presence, E-N-T-S, without presence, E-N-C-E. Here's their response, verse 4. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. (laughs) What's that a contrast from? Chapter 32, remember? All the ornaments, all the jewelry. Remember, out popped the calf was Aaron's explanation, not so great explanation for how that all happened. Right, so there now they're like, 
they've learned some things, they're growing and maturing in a certain way, they're like, we're not going back and that, we're not going to do it that way. So they hear these, what's so distressing isn't that God's going to take them into the land and drive out the ites, it's that He's not going to go with them. And there's a little window into what he's trying to build. Verse 15, jump down to 15. Moses says to him, says to the Lord, if your presence, notice capital P, does not go with us, do not send us up from here. You see, there's this propensity in the human heart to accelerate the march of destiny. We just want to get ahead of things. We want to move things along. I was thinking back and all all the years I've been walking with God or serving and working in ministry and thinking, how many times have I ever said to the Lord, like, man, Lord, you're just, that's just going a little fast for me. You're just kind of moving a little quickly. Like, I, I'm sure there may be a handful of those times, but I mean, how many times, right, the Lord's found me out like, Lord, why is this so slow? Why is this taking so long? There's this thing in the human, we want to accelerate, we want to move things along. And get things going at our own pace and route. And God's just like a three-mile-an-hour God. He's like his own pace. He's just, he's working out his plan and purpose. But generally speaking, we're going to see it as just, it's not going to be quite as quick as we prefer, right? It's not going to match our pace preferences. And that's what's going on here. Moses like, hey, listen, one thing we're not going to do is we're not moving unless a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud comes with us. We ain't going anywhere. You see that? So the offer, presence, minus without presence, and the response is progress without presence is not an option. That's what Moses said. Nope, we're not going. If the choice is to stay in the desert with God versus exit the desert without God, it's a slam dunk decision. We choose the desert because your presence is more important than any progress we could make without you. You see that? That's maturity. That's what the Lord's looking for. That's what He's trying to build in His people. It's like, hey, value this life with me over and above just the direct blessings from me. So this past week, we had a good friend come to town, Clyde Christensen. Here's a picture of Clyde. Uh, Clyde's been a great friend, mentor-type figure. He's a He's uh, currently the quarterback's coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and uh, you can see there's three of the quarterbacks in his 42 years of coaching that he's been able to be a quarterback's coach for. Most recently, winning a Super Bowl with Tom Brady after coaching Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck. Not a bad quarterback room, right? I mean, Clyde, he's, I mean, crazy, and he's had some other amazing quarterbacks as well, but just in this past year and the story and the journey. I mean, he was coach of Jameis Winston the previous year and now Tom this year and then goes in the midst of this season and, and wins the Super Bowl. So we were just reminiscing, sharing stories, catching up at the house, and he was telling me and reminding me kind of, of some of the journeys of the 42 years. And he, he told me the story of when he left Indianapolis. He was here, I think, for 14 years with us. That's when our friendship uh, grew the most because we were on on staff together there. We were leading coaches' Bible studies together, and he's a great spiritual leader for us. And he sensed in the midst of a really great environment, obviously being Peyton Manning's quarterback's coach is, uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty good deal, and he had a great relationship there. And he felt like God was kind of leading and prompting him to take an offer that was being given to him to join the Miami 
Miami Dolphins and become their offensive coordinator. Ryan Tannehill was the quarterback down there at that time. And so he leaves the Colts and goes to the Dolphins, and he's promoted up to the OC role, offensive coordinator. So as the OC, first year, they win 10 games, way more than everybody thought they were going to win. It was a great, great season. He expected to kind of build on it going into year two. And in the offseason, after year one, the head coach calls him into his office and says, hey, Clyde, I made a decision. I'm going to go a different direction with this coming year with the OC role. I'm going to bring in another guy and um, basically offered him a demoted position, uh, took away a coach title even. He wasn't even referred as a coach. And he, I mean, Clyde's like, he's just sitting there like, what? Like, I prayed about this. God, I thought in the language of Exodus, I thought the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud was moving us to Miami. God, I'm trying to honor you, obey you. I'm here trying to be a light for you. You, you blessed with presence ENTS in the, in the measure of 10 wins. Like, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense across the board. And uh, the Dolphins figured that there's no way Clyde's going to stay on their staff and take this demoted position. It's too humiliating professionally. Like, they just figure he's going to leave and find a job somewhere else. But Clyde said he just didn't sense a release from God. Like, he just sensed that God wanted him to stay there even though it was professionally so difficult and it was, you know, kind of just personally it felt humiliating to be in this kind of spot. It just didn't make any sense, but he said God wanted him to stay. So he goes back to the coach and says, hey, you know, coach, I, I'm going to stay. I'll, I'll take this position. Like I said, it wasn't even a coach style, like a consultant role or something like that. And, and you could tell by the reaction of the leadership in the Dolphins organization, they were shocked. They didn't think he, they were going to have to keep him employed. So they said, well, we got to find an office for you, he said. And he went from the OC's office. So you need to picture the offensive coordinator's office, like I visited him down there, and it was like a corner suite, windows everywhere, couch, conference room table. The thing was, it looked like an apartment. He went from the OC office to the copier room. They pushed the copier over to the side, squeezed a desk inside the copier room. He said his desk like stuck out the doorway of the copier room. Like people would walk by to do their normal admin work and they'd see like Clyde's desk like sticking out there. It's like, hey, Clyde. And he said it was just kind of added to the humiliation and the demotion. Can you just feel that? Clyde spent two years in the copier room. And he said as he worked through it with the Lord, he decided, you know what, God? I believe you brought me here. I believe this is where you want me. I'm going to put my hands to the plow and do the best possible job I can do, whatever responsibilities that they would like to give me. And so he started coming into work even earlier, and he started praying through the parking lot over the different parking spaces of the different staff members that he used to kind of be working with on team. He would like literally said he would just kind of walk through the parking lot and pray, and then he'd get into the building, and he'd pray through different offices and meeting rooms, and he just started praying by name. And then he just put his hands to the plow and did the best he could do. And, and he said this to me. He said, Eric, when I look back, those two years in the copier room were simultaneously the most professionally difficult and most spiritually fruitful of his whole 42 years. And then when I asked him, I said, what, what, what do you think the Lord was up to in the copier room when you look back on it now? 
Because by the way, he leaves that job, goes to the Bucks, and kind of see where the story keeps going now. And he said, um, he said, Eric, it was about God sifting the rings from the crowns. And let's talk more about that. He said this statement. He said, you know, in the Christian life, you can become so enamored with the rings in the language of NFL world, right? Super Bowl rings and Pro Bowls and double-digit wins and division championship. You can get so enamored with the rings, but in the Christian life, if you're just caught up with the rings and you lose sight of the crown, do you remember the crown in the New Testament? The language in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul says to his young understudy, 2 Timothy 4, 8, I put this in your notes, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. He's saying, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, it's not about the rings, it's about the crown. And do you know where God sifts, whether it's about the rings or the crown? It's in the copier room. That's where he sifts it. Is it going to be about the blessing of gifts from God, or is it going to be about intimacy with God? It's those copier room spaces. And that's where the Israelites find themselves here. They're in their own kind of personal copier room. It's called the Desert of Sinai. And they think they've got like a short 30-day journey to the promised land. And as we'll see as the story unfolds, it, it doesn't quite unfold at the pace and the rate they expected. And it's copier room stuff, right? When the circumstances of our life, when the presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, the E-N-T-S presence, no job title, demotion, no corner office, kind of humiliated professionally, like when they're presence ENTS isn't, it's kind of gotten thin. It's not unfolding like you expected or hoped. Which, by the way, isn't it even more challenging when you really sense this is where God was leading you? Like, it's one thing when you look back and go, yeah, you just kind of did it in your own strength, and you really didn't wait on God, and didn't seek God. But then there are these moments where pillar of fire, pillar of cloud goes from Indy to Miami, and then it unfolds like that. And the sifting and the work is presence over presence, E-N-C-E. Where's your identity? Where's your value? What is it going to be rooted in? The rings or the crown? So looking out, verse 12, Moses says to the Lord. So he finally you know, says to the Lord, hey, we aren't going if you don't go. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, underline all the you's in this section. You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. Underline that phrase. So that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. I think you can learn a lot about someone's relationship with God by listening to them pray. Two things, I think. you By watching someone go through a really deep, um, dark valley... Watch someone suffer deeply, deeply and listen to them pray, I think are some of the best windows into the soul. Someone's like, walk with God. And do you get a window into Moses' soul here? How large is this man's soul? Eleven times in those verses, he says, you, referring to the Lord. Basically, Moses says this, God, 
if you're not going to go with us, if you're just going to keep us camped out in this desert here at Sinai for however long, it's a really a bigger problem for you than it is for me. Because this is your story. You started all this. Basically, Moses and God, you started all this. These are your people. This is your story, your nation. You're unfolding it according to your plans. It's really an issue for you. Do you see? Like, I'm just trying to honor you. Do you see the role clarification that Moses has here? Here's another window into maturity in the Christian life. You can keep your roles straight. Like Moses understood his role. He wasn't the pillar of fire, wasn't the pillar of cloud. He was to be the leader and represent and point people to follow, listen, obey, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, do what God wants done. He knew he was the spiritual leader, but he didn't get confused. He wasn't the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Even though the people were always trying to thrust him into that, he kept his role straight. It's like, hey, the really, the issue isn't with me, the issue is with you, Lord. And that's a good window for us, right? We keep our roles straight. Family front. It's a great picture for marriage, right? One of the greatest gifts you can give your marriage is to keep your roles straight. One of the pressures that gets put upon marriage is when you look to your spouse to be something that God never intended for them to be. If you try to make your spouse your Messiah, you're headed for a really rough stretch on the marriage front. Because I'm just going to give you a little heads up memo. They're not your Messiah. And those of you newlyweds, I know that just burst some of your bubble, but I'm just telling you, ask anyone who's been married for any length of time, they're clearly not the Messiah. They're just to be your husband or your wife to fulfill the role. Same thing with parenting. You can't look to your children to be something for you that God never intended for them to be. We've got to keep our roles straight. And then we have the freedom to be who God made us to be, to have a prayer like that where Moses said, hey, this issue is really with you. Teach me your ways, Lord, because this is really your reputation, your name, your renown that are on the line. And the Lord replies, look at verse 14, my presence, notice capital P, will go with you and I will give you rest. So, Mo, or so the Lord says, all right, Moses, when it's time to go, I will go. And then 15, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will, verse 16, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What, here's the key sentence. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see what Moses says? Moses says, if you don't go with us, we're just going to be one more ite in the land. It'll be the Hittites, Jebusites, Ammonites, and Israelites. What's going to distinguish the Israelites from all the other lights? It's the capital P presence. Do you see that? If they can't distinguish the Israelites from all the other ites, if there isn't something that distinguishes, do you see what Moses is burdened about? They're not going to distinguish the Israelites' God from all the other gods and goddesses which is that very polytheistic environment, the land of Canaan, we'll get into this more in future weeks, but it's just hundreds and hundreds of gods and goddesses. It's not that they weren't worshiping anything, it's that they were worshiping everything. And so Moses says, they're not going to distinguish you, Yahweh, from all those other gods and goddesses, unless they can distinguish your people from all the other peoples. We can't just be one more ite. It has to be you with us and your presence with us. So it's the presence of God with the people of God for the glory of God that's displayed right here. Do you see that? That's what this is such a big deal. That's why Moses says, we're not going anywhere without you. 
Because when we step in, what's going to be the distinguishing mark is God's presence upon the people. And that's still the case today. Like when Jesus' people get together, what's supposed to be the distinguishing mark of the gathering of Jesus' people? Like what's supposed to be different about Eagle Church or New Hope or Traders Point or, or Freedom Church in Lebanon or ZPC or College Park? Like what's supposed to be different about the gathering of Jesus' people? I mean, are we just like a, a book club with some nice music? No. What's supposed to be different is when the body of Christ gathers, what's supposed to be distinguishing about it? What's supposed to separate? It's not just about, man, what a great group of people this is. It's supposed to be about what a great God this group of people is in relationship with. It's supposed to be the presence of God and the power of God and the glory of God that's displayed as God's people get together. Do you see that? It's supposed to be His presence, capital P, that distinguishes, like, what's the difference between Jesus' people getting together than any other great gatherings that happen all around our city all the time? It's this, capital P, presence. That's supposed to be the mark. And I suspect in the midst of the year that we've been all living, and some of you have testified to it, that one of the most difficult parts of this journey has been the isolation that occurred when you had long stretches of time away from the gathering together with the other followers of Jesus. Like when the, when the church of Jesus was gathering and that some of you weren't able to gather for such long stretches of time. You know what gap you missed? You missed this. You missed what's, what um, Moses is getting at here. This distinguishing element that something happens in our lives way beyond just certainly you miss connecting with one another. But ultimately, the church of Jesus is to be about God. That we're His people to display His glory and His story of all weeks of the year that we're heading into. We steward the most amazing story, the single most life-transforming story in the history of the world is Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. There's no seven days in the history of the world like we're about to walk through church. It's about Him. It's about His presence, His story, His fame, His renown. It's not just exclusive to Eagle. This is all of Jesus' people, all the body of Christ gathered in all the places, 190 nations. That's what we're to be about. And of course, on this side of the cross, the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud that was external for Moses on this side of the cross and the empty tomb and this side of Pentecost, what was external in Exodus 33 has come internal by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's how Jesus can be simultaneously present here. You know, he's just like at Mount Sinai, pillar of cloud, like he's in Sinai. He couldn't be in Sinai and Jerusalem. But now, by the power of the Spirit, 190 nations, 2 billion people, wherever Jesus' people gather, presence of God, power of God, glory of God to display. Like what distinguishes that? Let's see how pleased Moses or the Lord was with Moses' prayer and response. Verse 17, how pleased was he? The Lord says to Moses, I'll do the very thing you have asked. That's who you want leading the prayer ministry in the local church right there. Now, I know a lot of you got a lot of great prayer lives, but man, that's strong. Don't you want to have a prayer life like Moses? I'll do the very thing you've asked. Now, that's strong right there. Because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then verse 18 says, now show me 
your glory. So what is it that Moses asked for? He said, teach me your ways, verse 13. See that? Teach me your ways, verse 13. Guarantee to me your presence, verse 15. And show me your glory, verse 18. Church, that's the vocabulary of the free. That's the prayer language of the copier room. That's what happened when God sifts presence E-N-T-S from presence E-N-C-E. Teach me your ways, guarantee to me your presence, and show me your glory. Worship team, why don't you come back up? I'm going to draw this together, just kind of a couple reflection questions this morning, because I have to believe this morning there's some who feel like Coach Clyde in Miami in the copier room. I, I suspect some of you in your own personal copier room moments. Some of you stepped out, stepped forward, followed God's leading, do what God's asking, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, could have been something on the work front, could be something on the home front, financial front, ministry front, whatever front, you've ended up in your own personal copier room. Like, it, di- it isn't unfolding in any way like you expected, hoped, or prayed it would. And you're sitting there, you're saying, Lord, where are you in all this? The presence ENTS is not, it's pretty thin. And I wonder if there's a loosening of the grip, like Clyde discussed, maybe a, a changing of the focus from the rings to the crown. Is there some sifting going on in that space to say, it's not that you didn't follow the God's leading properly, it's just that He had some other things in mind as you stepped out and stepped up into that. It didn't match your expectations. And one way you know you're kind of in that space and feel like you're maybe making some headway is when you begin to craft some prayers that reflect Moses' prayers, when you're able to keep your role straight, recognize who God is, who you are, what's your part in all of this, and you can get to the place where it's like, teach me your ways, guarantee to me your presence, and show me your glory. God, I'm not moving, I'm not going anywhere unless you go. There's no, like progress without presence, it's not an option. And the only thing that's going to distinguish what's going on here is you. This isn't about me, this is about you and your name and your fame and your renown. Let's pray together. So Father, just want to take a moment and Just thinking about maybe some who find themselves in their own copier room situation and set up. And I pray that you would give them your perspective, that you'd shine the light of your hope and uh, that you'd pour out your spirit. And Lord, I pray that in all of our hearts, we'd become far more enamored with the crown that awaits us at the end of the run than the rings on the journey. And maybe there's some that have been experiencing some of the rings and we give you glory, we give you praise. If there's been an outpouring of tangible blessings, we don't take those for granted. Uh, with a heart of gratitude, we say thank you. And a real mark of maturity might be, man, how do we handle it when things are going really, really well? It's still about the presence, E-N-C-E. So help us, sift us, mature us, grow us. Thank you for your vision that's beyond enslavement to freedom. 
And as we step into this week ahead, thank you that you gave us the clearest picture of what it means to be free. We love you. We worship you. We trust you in Christ's name. Amen.